Okay, well, let's, uh, let's get started with um, what the Lord has to say today. Father, I thank you for who you are and that you seek to bend down and hold us close and uh, be our guide and our comfort and our sustainer and our redeemer. Thank you that you know more than we our need for you. Thank you that you know more than we what we lack. And thank you that you have rushed to fill the gaps and the voids and make up the difference in our lives. I ask that today you would guide us in understanding that intervention in our lives even more clearly. Help us to love you more dearly. I pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, we're coming to the end of Christ the Revolutionary. I think where I will be heading is uh, people of the revolution uh, next. And eventually, I think that will take us into a study of the book of Galatians. So that's down line a bit. Uh, but what we're looking at um, today is uh, a God of all comfort. In Second um, Corinthians one three, Paul is talking, and if I can just get to Second Corinthians one, um, in verse three he says, "Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort." Paul speaks of God's comfort more than any other writer in the New Testament that I'm aware of. Um, he talks about, well, on down in the next verse, he comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort by which we ourselves have been comforted of God. I'm going to come back to this toward the end. But Paul understands what Christ understood. Paul was a person of the revolution. He understood what Christ understood. Christ did not ever suspend the realities of this world in deference to faith. Faith was designed to equip us to live in the realities, not to suspend them. So you see in the first century church, you see no sense of how can God be a loving God if he allows this to happen. You just don't see that. You see they had the full embrace of the reality of this fallen world and Christ in his last moments with them re-emphasized the nature of the world in which they lived 
And as you turn to John 14, the nature of the world that they were soon to be confronting. They were soon to be confronting it in John 14 without him. And over and over on that last evening, he, he swings back around to this reality. John, actually, I'll go to John 16, These things have I spoken unto you just before he starts to pray for them. Just before he starts to pray, Father, I'm not praying that you take them out of this world. I'm praying that you keep them in this world and protect them from the evil one. So it, his prayer that he was getting ready to, to close the evening with and close his life with them with was not that they would be removed from the realities of this world, but that they would be strengthened and sustained within it. It was his whole, the whole thrust of who he was. And so the revolutionary Christ came to teach us how to be warriors in the midst of the battle. He came to, to emphasize the realities of suffering in this world, and yet the reality of his sustaining presence with us in this world, of his sustaining comfort. So he says, in these things have I spoken unto you, that uh, in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. He spoke of preparing the disciples. He said, they will hate you. If they have hated me, they will hate you. If they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. He was preparing them for his absence to say, you are going, they will kill some of you. They will hate you. The, the servant is not greater uh, than his master. He is speaking to them in these last hours of the realities, and yet in John 14 and John 16, he speaks of the provision that he makes for his followers in the midst of a world whose realities will not be lifted or suspended. That doesn't mean that there are not miracles in the midst of this. There are, certainly are miracles in the midst of this. But the major trajectory of life here on earth is not the suspension of that. If miracles were the normal course, I'm, I'm wondering if they would be called miracles. You know, miracles suggest an exception, a supernatural intervention that is an exception to. Now, the important thing for us here as people of faith is not to then discount the miracles, not to disbelieve that they, they are available to us and not to disbelieve that they are possibilities for us, but to pray in the faith of that possibility and in the, the reality of the world that we live in and embrace God 
whether the miracles come or not. Praise him in the midst of the miracles. Expect the miracle. There are miracles every day. But to let God be God in the midst of them and not let our faith be diminished, whether those miracles, if those miracles don't happen in the framework that we're expecting. So we're caught in tension as people of faith, in the tension of being equipped to live in a fallen world, being equipped to live amid pain and suffering, uh, but being equipped to believe in an interventionary God who can do all things and who does bequeath miracles to us, but whether he does or not, to believe him still. And, and that was the amazing tension in which the disciples lived and flourished. They lived on, in, both, in both worlds. So Christ, as comforter, is dealing with the suffering side of our experience here. And so he says in John 14 and in 16, I'm going to read uh, both to you. Uh, let, me, I, let me start with, uh, with 16. Let's go to uh, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient. It is good for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And then he goes on down uh, in verses 8 and beyond, speaking of the different varying roles that this comforter takes, of uh, conviction, of uh, reproving the world of sin, of judgment. But the place that I want to land today has to do with simply the comforting aspect of the comforter. The comforter has other roles, but his primary role is to draw us to himself in the midst of a world of discomfort and struggle and tribulation. And so in uh, chapter 14, verse 16, he says, I will pray... You know, he's telling them that he's going away, but I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. It will be the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be in you. This is why it is as King James says, expedient, that Christ goes away. Because it's more important that Christ the Comforter be in us than with us. That he bring something to the depths of our soul that in the physical presence he could not bring. So you reference back to the Beatitudes, which we've looked at, and the very first one is, blessed are they that mourn. Actually, it's not the first one, it's the, but it's the third one. Go over to that. I need to get that right. I'm doing it from my head here. 
uh, Matthew 5, 3. I need to be, be sure on that, especially since it's being recorded. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit is the first one. The second one is blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, that Greek word for comfort means to draw near to. Not only someone who comes and walks alongside, but in the midst of the tribulation and the suffering that we are certain to experience in this world, the Spirit draws us to him. It's similar to what we see of Christ in, uh, later on in Matthew 23, where he is in the final swing of his life, the final week um, of his life, and he's coming, he's coming into Jerusalem. He, is, he moves sort of in and out of the gate uh, in these last few um, days uh, before Passover. And in verse 37 of Matthew 23, he looks upon Jerusalem. And he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you that kill the prophets and stone them, which are sent unto you. How often would I have entered, would, would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you would not. That's the idea of gathering us to him. And his desire, God's desire, was to do that with the children of Israel, the house of David. How I have longed to do that, to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. And then the, verse, the next verse, 38, he says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Um, back in 14 of John, when he speaks of the comfort, comforter, I will pray to the Father and he will send you another comforter. And, um, but the Comforter, verse 26, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and shall bring all things to remembrance. And in that context, he says, I will uh, not leave you, verse 18, I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. The word comfortless there is a different Greek word, orphanos. O-R-P-H-A-N-O-S. It means orphaned. I will not leave you fatherless. Another word that applies to the meaning of orphanus is desolate. I will not leave you desolate. The Jews that God has been working with for all of these years, he is getting ready to leave desolate. and hence his tears. 
not because he wanted that, but because the children of Israel would not come to him, would not let him comfort them, would not let him draw them to him, would not let him bring them under his wings, as the psalmist would say. So this is not judgment. This is consequence. And with great grief, God himself leaves them. Orphanos. But he's saying to them, because they had just heard him say that the last few days, two or three days before his death. He had said, over Jerusalem, now you will be desolate. You will be without comfort, fatherless. And now, shortly thereafter, he is saying, but I will not leave you fatherless. I will not leave you without comfort. I will not leave you in desolation. So Paul, over in 2 Corinthians 4, speaks to that. He speaks to the kind of life experience we as Christians can stand on and absolutely claim. And it is this strange tension between God's provision and our hope, the realities of this world, and his power in it. It is the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thing. God can keep us and save us from this fire, but if he does not, we will praise him anyway. It's that tension that we know that God can. Will he? We don't know. That is his sovereignty. But in the midst of that uncertainty stands a pillar of faith that declares whether he does or doesn't, I will still love him. Whether he does or doesn't, I will still follow him. I will still trust him. Whether he makes sense or not in the mix of the issues and the needs of my life, I will still trust that he's meeting my needs. It may not look the way I have scripted it in my mind for it to look. But there is this tension between, uh, in people of faith that we struggle with more than they in the first century. Because Christ so equipped them to know this world is going to be a world of tribulation. But I am with you in it. And so Paul understood this. He understood the sustaining, redeeming presence of Christ in the midst of pain and suffering. And he did not question his love. He saw his love in the midst of it. And that is maybe the highest expression of faith. Is into, in the mix of of the inexplicables of life, we still see God. And we still trust him and know him. And so, the ways of God in the darkness are that, in verse 6, God commands the light to shine out of the darkness. There is darkness. He enters into the darkness. His light shines forth from the darkness, and he has shined in our hearts because he entered into the darkness of our hearts and now shines forth from our hearts as light to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure, here again, 
in earthen vessels. This is Christ not just being with us, but in us. We have this treasure in our earthen vessel so that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We are troubled on every side in this world. We will have tribulation, yet not distressed. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the darkness. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in our body the dying of Christ, so that the life of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. Back over on the previous page, on 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he speaks to this same concept again. Of course, they didn't call it a concept. They called it a way of life. <laughs> I'm calling it in the 21st century a concept. <laughs> Verse 5 of, of 2 Corinthians 1, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds for by Christ. That word consolation means comfort. Same word, the drawing near. Verse 7, and our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as you are partakers of the suffering, so also might you be of the consolation, of the comfort. So this great revolution that's happening is Christ, this revolutionary, bringing together suffering and transformation suffering and comfort and it's not just it's not just a benign comfort it is a transformational comfort this is the revolution this is the revolution <clears throat> let me back up here go back here to second corinthians verse 7 i'm going to reread it of chapter 1 as you are partakers of the sufferings of Christ, so also are you of the consolation or the comfort. Verse 9, but we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raises us from the dead. Now go over again to chapter 4. I'm going to repeat these. Verse 10 and 11 always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is coming in the context of being cast down but not destroyed. Being, experiencing suffering but not defeat. That's, that's what we're looking at here, experiencing suffering but not defeat. Always standing victorious. Christ suffered on the cross, but he was not defeated there. He won there. So we always bear about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ so that the life of Jesus Christ might be made manifest in our body. John 14, 21 and 23, He who loves me obeys my commandments 
and I and my Father both will manifest ourselves to him so that the life of Christ might be manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, so that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest or stirred up in our mortal flesh. So then death works in us, but life in you. Christ the revolutionary is coming to live in us and to bring not only his comfort, but one of the ways in which he comforts us is to transform us and turn suffering on its ear. Cause Satan to fall on his own sword, which is what happened at Calvary, and it's what he intends to happen in the, in the, in, in the Calvary moments in our own life where we are suffering greatly, and Satan is coming in, seeking to steal and seeking to destroy. And if, by, as a people of faith, we say, no, Satan, I know that my Redeemer lives. Though I don't understand what's going on here, I trust him. And when I trust him in that way, not going into my 20th and 21st century theology of how can a loving God let these bad things happen to good people, but trust him in the midst of a world of tribulation and pain, all of which will not be suspended. We live as though we are not caught. I mean, we... We act as though, sometimes, you and I as Christians, as though we are not caught in this scene between heaven and hell. The very fact that this planet is ruled by the ruler of hell, the very fact that this planet is under the authority of the ruler of hell, and yet, with that, we have love and joy and happiness, and beauty speaks to the restraining hand of God. Because if we're being ruled by the ruler of hell, we should be in hell. But we are not. Because we are caught in the seam between hell and heaven. But we're not in heaven either. And so that means that all suffering cannot be and will not be suspended because we are in this world, in the wedge. Yes. That is such a wonderful statement, uh, and just for, so it can be caught on the, on the tape, what you said was wondering if we are living like the Jews did, oh, oh Messiah, free us from Rome. Free us from pain and suffering instead of maybe free us within it. Now, clearly, God deflects. I can't, we can't imagine how much he has deflected. Because Satan's whole intent is to make this hell. After all, he is the ruler here, isn't he? Sort of. Temporarily so. Why should it not be? But for this restraining, 
presence of God, it would be. But the issue is not free us from Rome, free us from pain and suffering, but free us within. And that is what 2 Corinthians 4 is about. The Hebrew word for comfort that we've been looking at here in John 14, um, is a word that they have ascribed to Messiah. So when they say Messiah, they mean comforter. So, yes, instead of free us from Rome, be with us in the midst of Rome. That's an excellent uh, comparison. And so Christ has come to transform suffering, not to alleviate it, although he does do that at times. But the thrust here in this wedged uh, existence that we have is to transform suffering and to use it as the very instrument, the, the instrument that Satan is intending for destruction if we give it to the Lord, is the instrument that he uses for transformation to recreate us over in his image. Did you catch that? So that the image of Christ might be filled out in us. So that if we respond in faith to the suffering that we're in, whatever that is, Suffering brought to us by Satan's hands falls on its own sword. At Calvary, Satan thought he had won. At Calvary, I think the empire of hell danced. A victory dance. And from heaven, a grieving father looked down. And the tears of heaven extinguished the fires of hell. And with a cross-shaped thumb, God bent down and he said, No, Satan, I got you. I got you. And I think it was sealed when hanging on the cross with the nails in his hands and his feet and the sword wound in his side, he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. When Christ yielded that moment of suffering, that moment of, of anguish to his father, that's when God, God's thumb landed and said, I got you. Satan fell on his own sword at Calvary. What he had thought would destroy his nemesis destroyed him. Ultimately, we just have to live it out and let the bell finish its ringing. But that is what the revolutionizing comfort of Christ is about. Comfort suggests not the alleviation of pain, but a power force that comes in the midst of pain and gives us hope, gives us presence, gives us power, gives us truth, gives us, deeds us, 
an inheritance victory where we are cast down but not destroyed. Where we seek God's hand in the midst of the nature and the ways of this world. So let's turn over to 2 Corinthians. Uh, Actually, I want to go to 2 Thessalonians 2. And Paul speaks further of this this comfort. 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, verses 15 through 17. Therefore... uh, Brothers, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which has loved us and has given us everlasting comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work. He sees that by the word of God, there is a supply of comfort uh, to our hearts. Second uh, Corinthians seven, uh, chapter six, and then I want to return to Second Corinthians four. Nevertheless, God that comforts those who are cast down comforts us by the coming of Titus. Now here we bring in, we see Paul bringing in the human element. The comfort's not just through the word, although that is an immense comfort. It's not just through the word written and read, but also spoken and preached. But it is also a comfort that God brings to us through the agency of friends and family and fellow believers. There's a human instrumentality here that speaks to the people of the revolution. If we are living, if, if we are carrying the living word within us, which we are, and if we are living that out in us, which we should, then we will be a people of comfort. Uh, Go right back over to uh, 2 Corinthians 4. Well, that's not where it is. Um, It has to be. I think I'm just missing it. Where it talks about... um, Okay, it's for Second Corinthians 1. I'm sorry. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds by Christ. This is verse 5. And whether we be afflicted is as for your comfort and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of, of suffering. So, and in verse 4, he comforts us with all of our tribulations that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort by which we ourselves have been comforted from God. So there is this community 
of comfort that arises from persecution and from suffering. If I have suffered in a certain way and I see someone else going through the same kind of ropes, I can come over to them and be of a unique comfort to them. I can bring to them the voice of one having been in the darkness and in the wilderness and speak light to them. This is part of the redemption. It's not that God brings it so that I can help someone else, but that when it comes, part of the redemption is that I am now able to walk with other people who are in the same valley. And it's part of the, not only the redemption laterally, but it's the redemption in me where I am conformed more and more to the image of Christ. So we have this uh, strange mix as you and I live on this planet. And Christ spoke to that in the last hours. And he continues to speak to it today in the Holy Spirit in us. That he's not leaving us desolate. He's not leaving us orphaned and fatherless. He has come into us because we have allowed him to draw us under his wings. It is only by faith that you and I can release this kind of comfort in our own souls. If we look at the waves that are washing in our boat, and are chopping the seas up that we live in and wondering why and wondering where and is God just an apparition out there? Is he just a spirit out there? Then we will not know the comfort that he longs to give to us. We will not experience this form of grace, this God of mercies will not speak to us of his mercy if we don't let our faith open that up. So if you and I, like Peter, look at the circumstance that are, are turbulent in our lives, it will cause us to sink. But if we look at the Lord who is here, there, and keep our focus on him, then the revolutionizing Christ not only declares comfort as a concept, but he proclaims it as reality in our lives. Uh, the size of our God is determined by the size of our faith, and the size of his comfort is determined by the size of his faith, our, of our, our faith. He asked you and me to be part of the revolution. And he speaks here in his last hours. He spoke at the very beginning of his journey in the Sermon on the Mount uh, of the ways of grace, of the ways of faith. And he beckons you and me to follow him in this revolution of grace and of faith, and in that grace to experience a comfort in the midst of the inexplicables of life. I will not leave you comfortless. 
I will come to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your promises stand for all time. And they reign supreme in the hearts of those who believe. Lord, we believe, help thou our unbelief, grow our faith, so that we will be the overcoming agents of grace and mercy this world yearns for, so that we will experience in the midst of this painful world a comfort that passes all understanding. I ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord, our Comforter, and our Redeemer. Amen.